everybody welcome back to the Mythgard Academy this is session number 11 of Alice's adventures uh, we've been a bit delayed here of late but we are ready to return to through the looking glass when last we met we were talking primarily uh, about the Jabberwocky poem but I seem to recall that I have forgotten to actually say the thing I wanted to say about the title of the Jabberwocky poem that is uh, the poem is called why is the poem called Jabberwocky but the actual thing is called the Jabberwock. Um, why do those two things not match? And my answer to that is, well, obviously, right? The Jabberwocky is an adjective, clearly, right? I mean, it's, it's, this is like we've seen in so many of the, um, so many of the words in that poem. Um, you can tell their forms and therefore their functions by, you know, the, the, the way that they're spelled, right? By the way that they're, they're laid out. Um, Jabberwocky is an adjective, right? Of or relating to Jabberwocks, obviously. Um, and so the poem is not called Jabberwock. It's not named after the Jabberwock. The poem is about something Jabberwocky, right? Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, that seems clear. It that it the poem fills my head with that idea, but I'm not quite sure what it is. I don't know what it means to be Jabberwocky exactly, but I guess you have to read the poem to figure out what it is to be Jabberwocky. Again, that's that's uh, I, I think in the title he's playing with some similar kinds of things uh, that we saw. Uh, within the poem itself. Um, but I think that that difference is something, it really invites us to look at that and to think about that difference and, you know, to think about this thing. The Jabberwock has a noun. It's this creature. We're given some reason to, you know, we, we know several things about it. Uh, it has jaws. It bites. It has claws. It catches. It has a head. It can be decapitated, um, which apparently will kill it. Um, I'm not going to assume that's a complete given, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Jackrabbit, I do think that his words about the uh, sort of etymology of Jabberwock is definitely ex post facto. Um, and um, yeah, definitely ex post facto. And yeah, and here's the thing. What an author says they were thinking when they invented something is never in my mind of absolute authority. I mean, that is, they can be the authority on what they were thinking. Um, but the author is not really in control of the meaning of the text. They're 
in control of their intentions, but not of the meaning. Um, and I doubly question uh, any assertion by Lewis Carroll about um, sort of the meaning of these words. That is to say, if later on he decides to go back and say there are clear and objective uh, uh, definitions of these, I question that. Um, that is, I doubt, I know I will be stronger about that. I doubt that very strongly. Um, that is, he can do that if he would like. We will see somebody else who is going to give very firm and definite uh, definitions. But I don't, I, I seriously doubt the authority of the person who within this work is going to give us an authoritative reading of at least the first stanza of Jabberwocky. And what's more, since he already, so Jack Rabbit, since he already has played that game, right, he gives us a character within this story. It's going to be um, Humpty Dumpty, of course, who is going to give us an authoritative reading of the Jabberwocky poem. And he's making fun of that kind of authoritative reading of the Jabberwocky poem. Um, I, I'm not at all sure that he's being serious uh, in um, his letter that he wrote later on. Um, so not only, Jack Rabbit, do I think that that's ex post facto, I'm not sure he's not having them on. Um, I'm not sure that he's not... Um, I'm not sure that he's not teasing them, actually, by writing it. But um, uh, anyhow, okay. But on we go as Alice prepares to leave Looking Glass House. So... Um, Right. It's true. You know, JJ is challenging me. You know, when it, when have I ever found Lewis Carroll to be less than completely serious? It is true. I agree. I, I do acknowledge that it's a, a slightly outlandish hypothesis, right, that uh, Lewis Carroll could be, uh, you know, <laughs> tongue in cheek and, uh, uh, you know, having having a joke with people. But it is just possible just possible uh, that uh, that that could be. All right. So let's look at where Alice goes. Alice has a really hard time getting out of the house. She gets out of the house and she sees a hill off in the distance that she wants to get to. Now, first of all, keep in mind, um, the situation is very similar to the situation that we saw in Alice in Wonderland when she was she lands or she falls down the rabbit hole for a very long time and then she lands in this room and there's a door but she's too big to get through the door and she can see the garden out there and she wants to get through in the garden it takes her a long time to get through into the garden and there the issue was her relative size um, and her ability to get to the key um, so it was about her growing up and her shrinking small and her getting out into the garden now, um, uh, now it's different. It's similar. There's another garden that she's trying to get out to in a hill that's in the middle of the garden, and she keeps not being able to. You're right, JJ. This is kind of like a, this is kind of like a, 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 a sort of a, a nightmare fantasy version of 2020, right? When you can't leave the house. Um, yes. Yes. Um, every time she goes out, she finds herself coming back in. So here's her eventually 
getting frustrated. It's no use talking about it, Alice said, looking up at the house and pretending it was arguing with her. I'm not going in again yet. I know I should have to go through the looking glass again, back into the old room, and there'd be an end of all my adventures. So, resolutely turning her back upon the house, she set out once more down the path, determined to keep straight on till she got to the hill. For a few minutes all went on well, and she was just saying, I really shall do it this time, when the path gave a sudden twist and shook itself, as she described it afterwards, and the next moment she found herself actually walking in at the door. Oh, it's too bad, she cried. I never saw such a house for getting in the way. Never. All right. So what I'm interested in here, and through much of our discussion here tonight, um, where we're going to be really focusing on chapter two, um, what I'm interested in is what do we learn about this world? Right? We were looking at Looking Glass House and its relationship to her regular world, right? Remember how we were seeing um, the, in her, her imagination had been populating the rest of the room that she couldn't see, including the other side of objects that she could see, like the face on the clock, which was an actual face. Um, so we had this sort of fantasy version of her room but of course, we also talked about how she had not been in, the, how she had been ignoring the looking glass before. Um, now, when she goes outside, she has this other problem. Now, I've skipped one bit. The bit that I skipped is when she goes downstairs. And when she goes downstairs, she's just trailing her fingers along the banister and her feet aren't touching the floor, right? She's sort of skimming along above the floor as she's headed down. So there's already something strange about how this works. Um, and what exactly is going... Why should, why should it be that she can't get out of Looking Glass House? Why is it that Looking Glass House keeps putting itself in front of her. Um, there are several ways, and we'll be discovering a few of them uh, today, um, ways in which we are uh, sort of cues that we're given um, to help us understand this. So I think... So Jackrabbit, there are some similarities to the mirror thing. If we, uh, the looking glass has been, is our primarily that sort of conceit. Um, and I'm using the word conceit in the old sense of the word conceit, not in the modern sense of like to be conceited, uh, but uh, in the old sense of the word conceit, meaning like a, a conception, a notion, right? A concept. Um, so one conceit, which is overlaid on top of the story, already, which has been from last, uh, from chapter one, is the looking glass. So that, so mirrors and how mirrors work is certainly one of the things that we've been invited to think about in conjunction with what we've seen. Um, how do, does that fit here? Does that help to explain what's going on? And if so, how exactly? It's almost Jackrabbit, like she's trying to navigate while looking in a mirror, but that would m merely lead her to, like, make the wrong turning, right? Um, like, if she were, like, intending to go left and she actually goes right, that might explain that. 
perhaps. Um, but that isn't what happens. She's walking straight down. She sees the hill straight in front of her. She's walking straight down the path towards it. And then the house is suddenly straight in front of her. So she's not made any turns whatsoever. She's walking straight, and there's the house. Notice how she characterizes it, is that the house is getting in the way. She accuses the house of itself trying to sabotage her by, uh, like, leaping in front of her. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and putting itself right in her way. So she's not aware of any, of any sense or any sensation of, uh, of turning around <clears throat> at all. It's not like she gets flipped around or feels herself be flipped around. Um, she's just walking and all of a sudden the house is in the way again. So how does this work? And how are we to understand this? Well, the one thing that it seems to me here is we look at her intention here. Um, she intends to go to the hill, right? And more explicitly, she is determined not. I am not going in again yet, right? The one thing she is not going to do is go back into the house. And so she moves forward, and it feels, it seems for a little bit like she's going to attain her goal. And then she finds herself instead doing exactly the thing that she said she would not do, actually walking in at the door of the house. Um, it seems that her intentions are the thing that are reversed, or the link between like the cause and effect link between her intentions and choices and actions, right? Like I intend to go to that hill. I am making a decision to go to that hill. I am setting out towards that hill. Um, all of those things are lined up. It's just the result. The result does not follow. The opposite result follows. And here it's exactly the opposite result. She not only ends up going... Um, in exactly the opposite direction that she was walking, but she ends up achieving exactly the opposite to what she meant to achieve, which is to leave the house and not re-enter it. So if there's a mirror reversal, it seems to be... That's where the... If, if we're placing a mirror, that's where the mirror seems to be placed between her choice and her intention and her actions and the results of those actions. Um, okay, and we, of course, will see that coming up again when she leaves the flowers to go to the queen. Um, and we'll see her comment on it a little bit more then, but let's kind of keep that in mind here. Now she meets the flowers. Oh, tiger lily, said Alice, addressing herself to one that was waving gracefully about in the wind. I wish you could talk. We can talk, said the tiger lily, when there's anybody worth talking to. Alice was so astonished that she couldn't speak for a minute. It, it quite seemed to take her breath away. At length, as the tiger lily only went on waving about, she spoke again, in a timid voice, almost in a whisper. And can all the flowers talk? As well as you can, said the tiger lily, and a great deal louder. It isn't manners for us to begin, you know, said the rose, and I really was wondering when you'd speak. Said I to myself, her face has got some sense in it, though it's not a clever one. Still, you're the right color, and that goes a long way. 
Okay, so this is now our second kind of data point as we're trying to figure out how this world works. What's going on in this world? What even, in a sense, what even is this story about? We got lots of setup in chapter one. Alice with her kitten, Alice with the chess game that she had just been doing, um, Alice looking at the snow falling outside the window, um, and then looking through the looking glass into looking glass house. Um, we saw the kitten and the chess pieces juxtaposed again inside looking glass house as uh, she was both treating and even speaking to uh, the chess pieces like the kitten and the chess pieces themselves were talking like kittens. Uh, remember the references to whiskers um, that we were looking at last time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, um, how does, so again, the, my question is, how does this world work? So Alice is addressing the flowers, right? Um, I wish you could talk. Hang on a second. This is just reminding me of something. There was another important thing that we didn't mention in regard to her relationship with the house. Yes, that's the reference that I was missing, and I think it's an important one. Pretending. Let's pretend. Remember that. We spent some time talking about Alice pretending. Um, Alice here pretends that the house is arguing with her. So she is personifying the house again. Just like she was personifying the kitten. Right? Um, her speaking, it's no use talking about it. I'm not going in again yet. This is very much like she was speaking to the, kit, to the kitten. So Alice's tendency to um, remember she was impatient with her sister because her sister would only just pretend to be one other person and Alice will pretend to be all the other people um, if her sister will only pretend to be one. Um, Alice loves to... Well, I say personify things, and that's certainly true, but I don't think it's a sufficient explanation of what Alice does. She doesn't merely personify things. She... I don't know what. She wants to interact with the whole world, right? She loves to pretend to talk... Now, of course, we also had the instance of her um, the recollected instance of her pretending that she was a hungry hyena and her nurse was a bone, right? Uh, so that was a sort of a depersonalization, depersonification rather than a personification. Um, as soon as we get into Looking Glass Room, we noticed that many of the things were, did have a personhood that they did not have in the normal world. 
like the clock face was an actual face. And more importantly, the chess pieces were talking to each other. They couldn't see her, but they were talking to each other. Um, so we seem to have some kind of uh, uh, sort of activation within Looking Glass House of her world of pretending. So here she's personifying the house. She's pretend. She, no, she's not just pretending to argue with the house. She's pretending the house is arguing with her. It's no use talking about it, right? Um, now, we see her in another one of those moments, but here, instead of just talking to the flower as if she were responding to something it just said, that's the technique she used with the house just now, that's the technique she used with her kitten all the way through. Um having this full conversation and notice also she never, she didn't although she might have been pretending to be everybody on both sides, she didn't like speak for the kitten. So when she was having a conversation, she wasn't like uh, providing the kitten's dialogue. She was merely acting as if she heard it. So, uh, and sometimes she would repeat it, right, so that we could follow more clearly the whole conversation that she was having. But, um, you know, she didn't like... uh, mimic both parts of the conversation. She didn't, like, do the kitten's voice, right? And um, pretend like the kitten was saying it. Uh, instead, her her relationship with her pretending world, right, is a little bit more... Um, well, it sort of presumes more on us uh, as we watch it ourselves, right? She's not performing for our benefit. She is living in her pretended world. So she's going to talk directly to the house as if she heard what it said, as if it were arguing with her. Um, This seems important when she's facing the flowers, because here she is in another imaginative moment, but instead of presuming that they have spoken, she merely addresses it quite poetically. Oh, Tiger Lily, I wish you could talk. We can talk, said the Tiger Lily when there's anybody worth talking to. So the flowers can speak perfectly well, and they will speak when there's anybody worth talking to. How do you define worth talking to? Well, the rose says it isn't manners for us to begin, and I really was wondering when you'd speak. Said I to myself, her face has got some sense in it, though it's not a clever one. Um, okay. Do we see what's happening? Do you see how this fits in with the pretendings that she's been doing? We now get the other side of the conversation, essentially. We find that she's been carrying on half of a conversation with every, as if presuming that they can talk. And the tiger lily, the flowers, will only talk when they're spoken to, like Alice speaks to everything. By doing that, she... Well, she doesn't make them talk, right? But she, it's the only way she discovers that they really can talk. Now, look at how astonished Alice is when this happens. She wasn't astonished when the face of the clock turned out to be the face of an old man. She didn't, wasn't astonished when she heard the chess pieces start talking. Um, 
that was all that was all fine um but she is astonished when she in a sense almost pulls her normal pretending trick only to find that they do in fact talk back if the kitten had in fact responded to the speeches she was making to him um presumably she would have been astonished there too and edith you're right the flowers are about as tactful as alice was in the first book yes um yes that is actually a really interesting parallel i think um yeah yeah um alice was not very polite um and remember that the issue there was that she she was not how do we say it i was going to say she wasn't sufficiently self forgetful um by which i merely mean that she um she was thinking of herself like wanting to talk about her cat dinah despite the fact that she was talking to a mouse she would forget about her own self and long enough to pay attention to who and what was talking to her, right? She was being oblivious about the perspectives and the feelings of others. And the flowers certainly um, do, are even more aggressive in that, aren't they? Um, they speak to her as if they assume that she's a flower. I'm totally forgetting what was the... Okay, now the next one's about seeing the queen. Um, so I've, I'd forgotten if I had uh, included that slide or not. I was debating. Um, anyway, I said that uh, um, there are. Um, I said that it's all she almost does her normal pretending thing, but it's not quite. In a sense, you would think that she should be less astonished here than in some of the other things that she saw before. Um, because she has just said, I wish you could talk, and her wish would appear to be immediately granted. Um, and yet, she's so astonished that she couldn't speak for a minute. It takes her breath away. At length, the tiger lily only went on waving about Sorry, as the tiger lily only went on waving about, she spoke again in a timid voice, almost in a whisper. She can barely believe it that this would happen. Now, I don't really know why this is so different for her than the chess pieces. Um, other than that, it seems to be a more direct sort of um, fulfilling of her wish, right? Um, Though, again, this is the kind of pretending that she's always doing. Pretending that the things she's interacting with understand what she's saying and can talk back to her. Yeah. Um, so... And the tiger lily immediately starts making invidious comparisons, um, questioning how well she can talk, right? As well as you can, 
and a great deal louder. Um, Tiger Lily speaks with a great deal of confidence. The rose speaks of their manners. I really was wondering when you'd speak. The rose was staring at Alice, sort of wishing that she could talk, or wondering if she would talk. They can only address those, apparently, that address them. They assume a likeness between themselves and Alice, that Alice, too, is a flower, and they're trying to figure out what kind of flower she is. I believe it's her hair that they're referring to, so they're assuming that her hair is her petals. Um, and, of course, they start being rather uh, insulting. Like She's begun to droop, clearly, because her you know, hair is falling down what, around her shoulders or something, and so it's not standing up like petals should stand up, so it's not a good lookout for Alice. She must be, uh, she must be elderly and near the end of her run, right? Which Alice doesn't like the thought of at all. Um, I think here we can see Looking Glass World operating in a different kind of way. Um, with the house, we were looking at looking, looking glass as reversal. You intend to go one way and your intention is reflected back and you end up going in precisely the direction and to precisely the destination you did not intend. Here, I think we're beginning to see the kind of imaginative overlay Remember, Alice didn't see herself in the mirror. Um, she always omitted, she always pointedly ignored her own reflection in the mirror and did not fantasize about another girl who lived in Looking Glass House. Um, here, when she's in front of the flower beds, I think she's looking in a mirror in a different sense, or there's almost like a two-way mirror in between the two of them. The flowers looking at her see a reflection of themselves. Um, and in the flowers, she finds her own wishes reflected back on her. She wishes that she could talk to the flowers. Because wouldn't it be fascinating to talk to flowers and see what they're like, to see what they think about? Um, only to find the flowers have been thinking the same thing about her. And... Um, she's the one who seems to be struggling to talk while they are confident. And we don't ever... She doesn't actually get to know the different flowers too well. Um, and yes, Mighty Felix, I do think that uh, um, it is related to the advice given. This scene is related to the, to the uh, don't speak unless you're spoken to uh, advice uh, very often given to uh, 19th century children. Yes, yes. Um, but notice there's also... She's a child speaking to the flowers. The flowers looking at her, to her she looks old, even withered, right? Drooping. Um, is this a distorted mirror, or is she just in the flowers looking back at herself from this different perspective, one that she doesn't like. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, so I think I, I get, I, the whole, the flower sequence gives me the sense that 
the reflections and the interactions with the reflections that we get in Looking Glass World um, are more about merely reversals. Um, is she the first human they've ever seen? Well, Edith, it's not obvious. Um, but it's possible. You know, we don't know. There don't seem to be any other little girls like Alice um, in Looking Glass World. Again, this is where um, C.S. Lewis talks about Alice as an example of one of the things that he's talking about, I believe, in On Stories, his essay On Stories, um, where Alice is a very normal little girl and the whole world around her is is crazy, like the whole world around her is strange and weird and different. Um, there are no other normal little girls, which makes Alice in the world, in this world, very strange, right? It not only gives the point that, of course, that Lewis was making in that essay, is that it makes Alice a sort of a safe and simple frame of reference for us. We, as viewers, as readers, can connect with Alice. Um, and, uh, uh, and she is kind of our, our frame of reference of normality um, and therefore has the same reactions that we would have if we were there. Um, however, uh, yeah, but to th look at the same thing from the other direction, the whole rest of the world is uh, strange, right? Um, so is she the first normal little girl that they've seen? Very possibly very possibly. When the rose says that her face has got some sense in it, though it's not a clever one, um, I assume she's judging it. Um, uh, I assume she's judging it by... Uh, she's judging Alice's face, that is, by the faces of other flowers. Because all of the flowers assume that she's a flower of some kind or other, right? Um... Yeah, so what does it mean when it says you're the right color and that goes a long way? Um, so, uh, Lifesa, I think it might mean that her face is red. Like that she's blushing or surprised. Um... You know, I guess she, like, flushed in her, like, wonder and excitement. I don't know. But I think that her face is red. Because I, I do assume that the rose is probably red. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't... But I don't know. Um, yeah, if hair equals petals, then, well, the face would be the face of the flower. Um, could it mean that Alice is a redhead and not a blonde? It's possible. It's possible. Uh, you'd think if she were a redhead, um, which in the case of most redheads means orange head, in fact, um, uh, you'd think the tiger lily would perhaps have uh, related to her more closely than the rose. Um, hard to think that she has rose-red hair uh, in any case. Um, yeah. Um, I... 
It's interesting. I, I hear some of you looking, uh, talking about racism. I mean, from a flower perspective, I mean, there's no question. You're the right color, and that goes a long way. I mean, I know that that, that sentence taken out of context uh, definitely is going to mean different things to different people these days, truly. Um, but uh, but I don't think at all uh, that, that, that... I think there are many things I think the rose might mean by that statement. Um, but you're Caucasian, so that's okay, is I think near the very bottom of the list of what I think the rose likely means by that statement. Um, the roses, the flowers are all speaking from a flower perspective, not a human race perspective at all. Um, uh, yeah, they're, they're, so yes, you're the right co It may be that she has a red dress. That seems really more likely. Um, I was connecting it to her face because she was just talking about her face. Um, but, uh, but it's but there's no reason to think that when she says it's you're the right color, she's still talking about her face. Um, she may well be, be wearing a red dress, and that's why um, the rose is saying she's the right color. Um, that seems very possible, even likely. Have we been told anything about? Um, Have we been told anything about this? Yeah. Well, JJ, I think she's going to be... So we know that the colors in the chess game are going to be red and white. Um, and if she is wearing a red dress and therefore is a red girl, right? As uh, in the eyes of the rose, they're not eyes, I guess, in the perception of the rose... And the rose, seeing that as similar to herself, uh, considers it the right color. Um, it would seem relevant as she's just about to meet the red queen. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I... Again, I think it's, it is, to me, 100% inconceivable, Edith, that the rose would be referring to her skin color and thinking about human races. Like 100%. Not even like 98%. 100% inconceivable to me that that's how the flowers here are talking. By the way, notice that we're all assuming that the right color means the same color as the rose. Right. I mean, all she says is the right color. And we assume, I'm not saying I think that that assumption is wrong. I just think that notice that we're making that. Um, that is, we're assuming a kind of self-centeredness. Uh, on the part of the flowers, which seems to fit as they don't seem to be able to get outside to sort of use their own Im imagination to get outside their own flower, their own floral perspective. Um, uh, yeah. And so therefore that each flower would deem its own color to be the right color to be. Um, Makes sense. Cer certainly seems to fit with that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lefesa, sure, I could see that as a metaphor. Lefesa's thinking, uh, you know, I don't know much about you. You're on the right team, which is a good start. Uh, yeah, except for the Rose wouldn't use a team, you know, a sports metaphor about teams, right? 
Um, all the rose is saying is that you're the right color. You, I, which is again presumably red. Um, either, which again I think can only be uh, the color of her clothes, or unless she's like blushing or something like that. Oh, I see the ch uh, chest team, right? The chest side. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. You know, Lee so one of the things that makes me think of, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm trying to think of a single example. I'm remembering ahead now to the rest of this book. I'm trying to think of a single example where they seem to be competing with each other. And I don't recall one. You'd think that would be a thing. Um, as, of course, if you're within the frame of the chessboard, chess is not only two different teams competing against one another, it's competing against one another violently, potentially, right? There's um, fights and taking things captive and all that sort of thing, right? Um, uh, and yet... I don't remember any... Yeah, like the wizard's chess. Exactly, fourth on the list. Um, maybe we'll find one. Maybe we'll come across one that I'm not remembering right now. But as I reflect on it, I find that that's an element that is more absent than I would expect. Competition, I mean. Um, notice... Notice that... Um, from later on in chapter two, we'll get there. Um, the queen is the red queen is going to assign her to the white team, Alice. I mean, um, because there's an opening because Lily's too young to play yet. L L Lily the pawn, right? That we met in uh, uh, in the last chapter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, So there doesn't seem to be animosity. There doesn't seem to be competition. There certainly doesn't seem to be animosity. Um, and I don't remember any kind of conflict. All of which you'd think would at least be, well, on the table, so to speak, uh, in a chess comparison. But it isn't. Um, Alice's game of croquet with the cards in Alice in Wonderland um, contained, well, little actual violence, but um, threats of violence all over the place. Um, Rowan, it is possible that it's a white rose and that Alice is wearing a white dress. She's going to be a white pawn, after all. Um, so that would seem to fit. Um... But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Anyway, taking a step back here again. Here, when Alice sort of looks, not directly into the mirror, but when she looks into the flower bed here, she finds a group of people who were all objectifying her. And... 
their sort of speaking and bringing her into their world. Again, the the frame of reference of all of the flowers is a flower frame of reference. And they don't even for a moment entertain the idea that Alice is not a flower, is not, uh, uh, is not in their world. And they speak to her as if she understands and agrees with all this, very much like she was speaking to her kitten before, um, as if her kitten fully understood things from her perspective, right? From, and not as a kitten might understand things. Um, yeah. Um, yes, Thistledown, you're right. Uh, the queen, the, they say that the queen is redder than Alice. So I don't think, I agree, I don't think she's white. Perhaps pink? Um, yeah, perhaps pink. Could be a pink rose. First of all, it's interesting that the rose immediately talks about color, but we're not even told what color the rose is. There are several options. Um, red and white are the two biggest ones. This is England, after all, right? So red roses and white roses have a certain amount of history uh, over there in England. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, that's interesting. Thistledown was saying, I thought the right color referred to all possible colors a flower or non-flower might appear from a rose's view as the view of the gardeners and the passers-by. Oh, right, so um, like um, a living thing color. Perhaps. Hmm. Um, maybe, but I don't, it's, I don't think it's necessarily just the things that appear in their view. Well, let's look at the transition to the Red Queen. I want to make sure we get to the Red Queen's conversation. Alice looked around eagerly and found that it was the Red Queen. She's grown a good deal, was her first remark. She had indeed. When Alice first found her in the ashes, she had been only three inches high, and here she was, half a head taller than Alice herself. It's the fresh air that does it, said the Rose. Wonderfully fine air it is out here. I think I'll go and meet her, said Alice, for, though the flowers were interesting enough, she felt that it would be far grander to have a talk with a real queen. You can't possibly do that, said the rose. I should advise you to walk the other way. This sounded nonsense to Alice, so she said nothing, but set off at once toward the Red Queen. To her surprise, she lost sight of her in a moment and found herself walking in at the front door again. Um. Okay. Once again, we get the mirror, the direction mirroring. Um, and here it's even more clear that it's not just about direction, it's about intention. Um, she was setting out to meet the queen, and instead of getting to the queen, she ends up walking in the front door of the house again. Um, I don't know that the bed of the flowers is necessarily still directly, you know, that like she's still going in direct lines away from the, uh, from the door of the house. She might be. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that didn't, uh, it, it, what is clear is about her intentions. Um, she thinks it's nonsense to walk the other way from the direction that she was meaning to walk, but she can, 
this is apparently how you have to navigate in Looking Glass House. Um, before I go on to the navigation, um, notice she's grown a good deal. Of course, it's hard not to remember Alice in Wonderland when we see the Queen having grown a good deal. Um, and, of course, I remember how that kept being spoken of in terms of growing up, like a child growing up. So she meets the Red Queen, but the Red Queen has grown up. But notice how the Rose immediately seizes upon that notion and thinks that she's growing up as a flower grows up. It's the fresh air that does it. Wonderfully fine air it is out here. That's what, it's the fresh air that makes them grow. You know, just like the flowers grow. Alice, though she's, en she's enjoying talking to the flowers, thinks it would be far grander to have a talk with a real queen. The word real is the thing that I'm also really interested in here. Is that a pretending word? from Alice. On the one hand, there's no illusion here. She knows that this Red Queen is the chess piece that she f found in the ashes when she found her, not the piece that looked like her, her in the ashes. She'd only been three inches high. And now she, here she is, half a head taller than Alice herself. She is pretending, or this is the result of her pretending, or what is happening in Looking Glass World is that her pretendings are happening independently of her, right? She was in control of her pretendings in the real world, and these are just the kinds of things that she might have pretended. But here, as we saw with the flowers, where she's wishing, you know, where she's talking to them, uh, you know, we saw that, that, that mirroring there. Um, now, once again, this thing, she's not doing the act of imagining, and yet it is playing out her pretendings, right? Um, yeah. Mo Dillon, you're right about the limitation of chess piece moves. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. Like, that doesn't explain the forwards and backwards thing. Um, but you're right. We should be remembering about the limitations of chess piece moves, especially later on. Um, so one of the things I think that we're seeing in Looking Glass World is that it is populated by things like Alice pretends, like she imagines. But here they are real, or it's as if they're real. She's now going to go and talk with a real queen, or at least she would, if she could get to her. A little provoked, she drew back, and after looking everywhere for the queen, whom she spied out at last a long way off, she thought she would try the plan this time of walking in the opposite direction. It succeeded beautifully. She had not been walking a minute before she found herself face to face with the Red Queen, and f full in sight of the hill she had been so long aiming at. "'Where did you come from?' said the Red Queen. "'And where are you going? "'Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time.' Alice attended to all these directions, and explained, as well as she could, that she had lost her way. 
I don't know what you mean about your way, said the queen. All the ways about here belong to me. But why did you come out here at all? She added in, in a kinder tone. Curtsy while you're thinking what to say. It saves time. Okay, so it succeeds beautifully. Going in the opposite direction of the direction that she intends to go brings her to the place that she wants to be. So by doing the opposite of what she wanted to do, she achieves what she intended to do. Okay. Um, so, yeah, she's learning for Thoughtless, as you say, the rules of Mirror World. Um, yeah, yeah. Thistledown is a really interesting observation that um, it's uh, pretending into a reality with... Uh, is is this pretend into a reality with autonomy a sub-creation? Um, yes, but who's the sub-creator? That's the question. Is Alice the sub-creator? Um... pulling back from that a little bit. What is the relationship between all of these things and Alice's pretendings? She wished that the flowers would speak and then they spoke. Is that, um, is that indicative? Right? Um, is she in fact wishing all this stuff into reality? Is that how, is that the rule of looking glass world? In a sense, looking glass world, of course, is the you look into the, a mirror and you see what do you see in a mirror? Well, you see yourself in a mirror. Um, is that why she didn't see her, her image in the mirror or ignored her image in the mirror and was looking at all the rest of the world? Because, like, that is all her in some sense. Um, it's possible there is um, there is some kind of sense of that. Um, of her wishes coming true, of her imaginations playing out. But I do think that there's some autonomy of it here, which does not just make this her sub-creation. Um, as soon as she gets there, the Red Queen starts asking her questions. Where do you come from and where are you going? So the, and then the Red Queen keeps giving her all these instructions. Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time. This would seem to be now the Queen is acting like a mother or a nursemaid, telling her what to do, how to comport herself, how to hold her head, how to speak, what to do or not do with her hands. Right? Curtsy, curtsy while you're thinking what to say. It saves time. Um, it, so, combination of advice and, uh, uh, and instructions. Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time. Sounds like good advice. Um, her advice will get a little bit odder uh, as we move forward. Um, but that, combined with the quick questions, makes her sound like an authority figure. Where do you come from, and where are you going? 
Alice has to give an accounting of herself to this authority figure. She is a queen, after all. Right? She is in charge. Um, as I probably, I would think if she's reflecting a real-world figure, um, and I don't mean we need to get all uh, Wizard of Oz about this, right, and figure out exactly, you know, who each of the, uh, you know, the Oz characters correspond to in Dorothy's real-world life. Um, it's not exactly like that, but um, I said mother. I think nurse is really probably more likely. Um, she has to give an accounting to the queen. Um, but of course, the questions are a little bit conspicuous. Where do you come from and where are you going? Well, um, as far as what her origin, her ultimate origin is and what her ultimate destination is, um, she could answer the ultimate origin, perhaps not the ultimate destination question yet, but it's it's kind of conspicuous that she's being asked about going and coming when she's only just figured out the going and coming, right? I mean, I was trying to come here. Um, you know, I was, I was trying to go here from over there, but I kept ending, I kept going where I came from, right? She's only just, Alice has just now learned how to, like, differentiate, right? How to, how to separate where she's coming from and where she's going to. Uh, those were the same thing just a minute ago. Um, and now, now we have two questions uh, about those things, fortunately, uh, because Alice can finally, uh, can finally get those. Um, that's the premise in the movie, is it, Thistledown? Um, I don't know the movie well, um, I haven't seen Disney's Alice in Wonderland in a long time. I haven't seen the live-action Alice in Wonderland ever, actually. Um, but, uh, anyway, anyway. Um, oh, in the movie. Sorry, the Wizard of Oz movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Apologies. Yes, I'm, I'm referring to the Wizard of Oz movie um, when at the end she realizes that they were all, the characters were all corresponding to. Yeah, sorry. That, no, sorry. That's what I was referring to. Apologies. Um, yes. Sorry. Sometimes we get tripped up by the, there's a delay. There's like a, a few seconds of delay between when I actually say something and when you hear it and then type it. And then it takes you more seconds to type things. Uh, so sometimes... Uh, when I see your comments, I think you're commenting on something different than you are commenting on. Sometimes that gap gets confusing. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, yes, exactly. No, I don't, not meaning to create confusions between the Oz movie and the Oz books. I was referring just to the movie. Um, I should have clarified that uh, a little bit more. Um, yeah, okay. Um, Alice... Well, Alice's answer to the questions, where do you come from and where are you going to, is that she had lost her way. What an interesting answer that is. Has she? Is she lost? In what sense is she lost? Why does Alice say that? Um, I don't... I don't understand why Alice says she's lost her way. 
I mean, she's only just found her way, in a sense, found a way to get anywhere. Um, she was setting out here. She went in through the Looking Glass into Looking Glass House on purpose. She then wanted to explore outside Looking Glass House and found the garden and wanted to go here. She knows exactly where she's going. Not only does she know the way home, she's attempting actively to avoid the way home. She doesn't want to go in the house again. The reason she wants to not go in the house is that she feels that she'd be forced to go back home um, if she were, you know, she'd be spotted through the looking glass and be forced to leave, come out through the looking glass and go back to a regular world. She doesn't want that yet. Um, so she's, um, she doesn't know where she's going. I mean, she doesn't know, uh, she has no idea exactly where she's headed. She's now achieved the only goal that she ever had uh, so far, which was to get out into the garden and get to the hill. And she's now quite near that hill and talking to the queen, which is what she wanted to do. Sorry, that question never even occurred to me before. Why does she say she had lost her way? I think it's just a polite way to not answer the two questions. She doesn't want to explain where she comes from. She doesn't know where she's going. And so rather than saying, it's complicated and I don't know, she just says, I've lost my way. I don't know what you mean by your way. All the ways about here belong to me. <laughs> I've always loved that line. Now, this is a game that we've played before uh, in Adventures in Wonderland. And... um they play it much better, I think, in Looking Glass World than they did in Wonderland. Um, and that game, of course, is taking what she says at face value, um, not playing along with idioms, right? Not playing along, um, not playing along with uh, uh, conventions of expression, right? Um, of course, when Alice says, I've lost my way, she's not laying claim to anything. She's not using my in that sense of the possessive, right? Um, but that's how the queen takes it. All the ways here belong to me. Why did you come out here at all? Now, Alice actually doesn't ever answer that question. There are a number of questions that the queen asks that Alice doesn't end up answering. Modil and I do agree. It is a, like an excuse, saying that you're lost. Um, she's speaking to an adult. She doesn't want to explain herself to the adult. Um, and so, yeah, it makes a kind of sense. Um, the queen here, with her pouncing on her words, I don't know what you mean by your way, um, tips us off to another way in which and again, I, it works better within the, the sort of conceit of Looking Glass World. Um, there are several times when a mirror will be held up to Alice's speech in this way, right? Look more carefully at what you just said. You just laid claim to the roads by saying that you had lost your way, right? Um, look carefully and see how those things can be misunderstood. Um, but that's not the direction the queen continues. Um, 
I love this conversation. She doesn't continue just in seizing on Alice's words like that. Finally, she answers, I only wanted to see what the garden was like, Your Majesty. That's right, said the Queen, patting her on the head, which Alice didn't like at all. Though when you say garden, I've seen gardens compared with which this would be a wilderness. Alice didn't dare to argue the point, but went on. And I thought I'd try to find my way to the top of that hill. When you say hill, the queen interrupted, I could show you hills in comparison with which you'd call that a valley. No, I shouldn't, said Alice, surprised into contradicting her at last. A hill can't be a valley, you know. That would be nonsense. The red queen shook her head. You may call it nonsense if you like, she said, but I've heard nonsense compared with which that would be as sensible as a dictionary. <laughs> Man, I remember once I assigned my freshman English students to write a paper on this passage. That was so mean in retrospect. Um, uh, yeah, she does immediately go back to my way. Yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. What's the pattern? The queen does this three times. The comparisons. Right? The garden to a wilderness, the hill to a valley, and nonsense and sense or sensibility. Nonsense and a dictionary, technically, right? Dictionary taken to be the um, uh, icon or paragon of sensibleness, right? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Thistledown says, this still makes me laugh after over half a century. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what is the queen doing? We're looking at opposites here. Right? Garden Wilderness. Hill, valley. Nonsense, sense. These things are opposites of each other. Um, by the way, you understand the sense in which a, a wilderness uh, is differentiated from a garden? Um, by a wilderness, I think they don't only mean um, like just going out into the woods and that's the wilderness compared to a garden, like the wild and the domesticated. Um, a wilderness was also a um, landscape feature as well. Um, if you have uh, an estate, um, you know, if you have any grounds uh, to your house, um, you, might, you might make a garden, um, but you also might choose to have a wilderness. Uh, you may remember Jane Austen fans, uh, Lady Catherine de Bourgh observes that there is a pretty little sort of wilderness out there that she proposes to go and uh, take a turn in uh, with Elizabeth when they're having their awesome conversation at the end of, near the end, of Pride and Prejudice. Um, uh, this was fashionable in the early 19th century uh, to have... Um, it was... Uh, <laughs> part of the sort of gothic thing. Um, yes, Mansfield Park has an important wilderness, too. It was totally a thing in the first few decades of the 19th century um, when the fashion 
began to move away from formal gardens, um, fancy, highly symmetrical, ornately um, uh, uh, organized and landscaped gardens uh, into stark um, wildernesses and even like erecting a set of ruins in your backyard. Fake ruins, you know, but you do what you can. So you put up some ruins um, in the backyard. Uh, I blame Byron, but um, it's probably not just his fault. Anyway, um, so that was kind of a thing. So on the one hand, um, are those fake ruins called follies? Hmm. I'm not sure that's... Maybe. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think... I, I, yeah, I think perhaps they are. Um, that would make sense in any case. As, of course, part of the idea of it, right? It's about... Um, a sort of poetical celebration of the folly, um, you know, the folly of human ambition. Um, like Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, it's very romantic. The whole thing is very romantic. Um, I, uh, I always remember when I was in, uh, when I was living in Delaware and I was commuting to work in Maryland every day, I drove through, I don't know, about 25 miles of cornfields uh, all the way across. And um, there was this one old manor house, which was clearly a manor house. Um, it wasn't enormous, like truly enormous uh, mansion, but it was a fairly substantial manor house surrounded by, by fields. Still currently working cornfields, but the house was abandoned. And it was overgrown with ivy and the windows were uh, were all knocked out and just like black holes leading into nothingness and uh, and the part of the roof was crumbling in and I lived there for nine years drove past that uh, crumbling house for nine years and I, I fancied it got a little bit more uh, crumbled and overgrown um, and I used to think um, uh, I used to think that uh, that was very romantic uh, in this sense <laughs> Of, of romantic. Uh, that site is, that's a, a kind of thing that uh, uh, people in the early 19th century would have, uh, uh, would have enjoyed uh, driving past and seeing. Um, but um, yes, yes. Oh, the ha-ha, that's, uh, that's, I believe a ha-ha is like a ditch of some kind. But um, anyway, um, okay. Uh, I'm digressing now. Wilderness, that's what I was talking about. Okay. Um, Alice is not sure. So when the Queen says, when you say garden, I've seen gardens compared with which this would be a wilderness. Alice is like, well, okay. Garden and wilderness are two different kinds of landscape architecture. Right? Um... So, I mean, it's clear that it's not a wilderness in the sense of, like, a genuine, like, out in the wilderness, right? But it could be a wilderness. Um, and when it's used with an article like that, I think it's probably, um, uh, a, you know, an indefinite article like that. I think it's, it's, it's probably, she means, the landscape concept of wilderness. Um, so Alice doesn't dare to argue the point. She knows that a wilderness and a garden are not the same thing. In fact, 
they're opposites of each other. One is maintained, the other is not maintained, is let, let to run wild. Um, one is uh, uh, shaped and structured, and the other is, you know, all about chaos and disorder. Um, so those two things are opposed to each other. But at the same time, you know, um, it's... Um, it's... Uh, maybe she means that I've seen gardens so much more ornate, so much more thoroughly, like, meticulously maintained, so much more elaborately structured than this one, that compared with those, this is practically a wilderness. Like, okay. You know, Alice is kind of willing to stretch a point. Right? She doesn't linger on it too long. Um, Because you can see wilderness and garden as two points in a spectrum, right, of at the end of the day, artificial. I mean, even a wilderness is artificial, uh, in a sense. Um, lands, you know, features of landscape architecture. So, okay, she'll let that one go. And then she, Alice mentions the hill, and the queen says, I could show you hills in comparison with which you'd call that a valley. Um, now, the difference between garden and wilderness, the comparison, like, what is the point of, what is the, the, the measure of comparison here? Um, It's about moving down the spectrum, right? If the spectrum that connects, right, the, the spectrum on which garden and wilderness are both points um, is the spectrum between order and chaos, right? Or between, um, like, active construction and, um, like, leaving it to grow by itself. That's a really awkward way to uh, describe those two points. Um you could say that garden and wilderness are both points on that spectrum, but what's the what's the spectrum on which, like, if you take the hill far enough down, it becomes a valley? This is where Alice objects. That it doesn't work that way. And the queen says, "I could show you hills in comparison with which you'd call that a valley." She says, "No, I shouldn't. A hill can't be a valley, you know." No, those things are opposites to each other. They're not, they're not just, there's not a gradient between hill and valley. It's either a hill or it's a valley, right? One is an innie and the other is an outie. They are not the same. And I don't care how large a hill. Put this tiny little hillock next to, you know, a very large mountain right? Put it next to Kilimanjaro or whatever, and it's not going to be a valley. It's just going to be a very small hill. Right? Exactly, Senoesha. At worst, you'd call it a plain, right? Like, it's, it looks practically flat in comparison. But does it go up or does it go down? If it goes up even only a little bit, guess what? It isn't a valley. It'll never be a valley. Alice can't handle this, right? Again, her first comparison, and now, and, and now looking back in retrospect, her first comparison seems to be in the same direction. Either it's cultivated or it's not cultivated. Um, Alice doesn't dare to argue it. She lets it go because I guess, you know, there can be kind of gradients in between. Maybe we can pass that off. But it seems like, no, we can't pass it off. The queen is insisting that these things which are diametrically opposed to each other are just, are sort of on the same sliding scale, basically. A hill can't be a valley, you know. 
That would be nonsense. And Alice uses the word, the word that uh, you'll remember I was resisting when we were talking about Alice in Wonderland, which I still very much think that people throw around way too easily. Um, and as I was saying just last time, Jabberwocky is not a nonsense poem at all. It's a very sensible poem uh, using unusual words, right? Um, exactly, Mahed, it's exactly like positive and negative numbers. Um, a positive number can't be negative, right? I mean, it's not, uh, you know, if you have the number two and you compare the number two to however large the other number gets, that's not going to make two into a negative number, right? Yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly like that. Um, yeah. Fourth Thoughtless, you're right. If you put either two mountains on either side of the hill, it will become a valley. But that's not what the queen says. She's saying compare in comparison with which you would call that. If you saw that large hill over there, you would look back at this hill and say, that's a valley. That's not a hill. That's a valley. And Alice says, no, I shouldn't. No matter howsoever large a hill you showed me. That would be nonsense. So Alice condemns as nonsense saying that a hill could be a valley to identify a thing as a thing which it is not to identify a thing with its opposite is nonsense to Alice the Red Queen doesn't back down you may call it nonsense if you like but I've heard nonsense compared with which that would be as sensible as a dictionary I just, I just love that. Um, the Red Queen appears to concede that what she just said was nonsense. Um, but it doesn't compare to the nonsense that she has seen, right? Um, it's very conspicuous that the standard, um, the standard for, cons the standard for, uh, sensibleness, right? For sense... Well, not sensibility. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm back in Jane Austen again. Um, for sense. The standard for sense. Sensibility, of course, is quite different, as Jane Austen teaches us. Uh, the standard for sense is dictionary. Right? Why? Do you see how that fits? Do you see how that fits with Alice's thinking? What does a dictionary do? A dictionary tells you what words mean. This word means that. Right? It doesn't mean other things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's exactly what... Um, uh, Um, and that's exactly what the basis on which Alice is operating. A hill can't be a valley, right? And it, she's implicitly, right, like appealing to the dictionary. Here's what the word hill means. Here's what the word valley means. A hill means, by definition, something that goes a bump in the ground, a bump that goes up, right? A valley is a dip that goes down. A hill, therefore, cannot be a valley QED. So the, the Red Queen seems to agree, right? Takes the dictionary as the uh, um, 
the sensible thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but what she has just said isn't going to be as sensible as a dictionary. Can't be. Again, based on what Alice said. No matter how much, how much more nonsensical you get, um, it is, it is not, um, yeah, that can't happen, and Alice is not okay with it. The queen does it three times. The third time is this meta version of what she herself just said. So, what is this about? Why is she doing this, right? What's going on here um, with the Red Queen? What's sort of the pattern of the Red Queen? Well, so first of all, why is, what is the Queen saying? Like, what's she doing? She is boasting about her own experience? Alice is answering her question. I only wanted to see what the garden was like, Your Majesty. And the queen keeps interrupting, keeps bringing the conversation back to herself. Though when you say garden, I've seen gardens compared with which this would be a wilderness. Right? You call this a garden, but... So it's slighting to Alice's experience. The queen is boosting up her own experience in comparison. Right? She keeps putting Alice down, essentially. When you say hill, I could show you hills. I've heard nonsense, compared with which. And yet, her claims are nonsensical. So notice on the one hand, it's kind of like um, the flowers. Yeah, Edith says, I've known people who, no matter what happens to you, they've known someone who has suffered something worse. Um, yes, yes. She is suddenly sounding like that, right? Though she's claiming... Remember the adult-child dynamic between her and Alice from the start of their conversation when she begins to uh, immediately ask her to account for herself by answering questions, right? The queen demands that Alice account for herself by answering questions and then starts telling her how to comport herself. Um, and... So there's this adult-child dynamic between them. But the adult, the queen, is the one who is sort of... who's spouting nonsense, who in boasting about her own experience seems like she doesn't even know <laughs> what hills are. Um, or wouldn't know how to be as sensible as a dictionary, you know, if she tried. Um, so the queen is, com is completely undermining herself. And I'm, I go back, Edith, I think it was you who were saying this before, how the flowers were like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. And uh, I think we can see a very similar thing with the queen here. She is so wrapped up 
in her own sense of her own grandeur and the grandeur of her knowledge and experience um, that she's completely oblivious to Alice. She's totally lost the thread. She doesn't actually care what Alice is saying in response to her questions, right? Um, and she makes herself look silly. Is this... Is there another, you know, Edith, as you were suggesting, is there a kind of looking glass, a kind of mirroring element uh, in this as well? Is this a, a kind of a mirror of Alice in some ways? I wonder. Um, now, Malhead, you're right. The queen asserts relative truth, and Alice maintains absolute truth. Yes. Alice is... And again, it's another way in which this gets inverted. The queen keeps saying... You, you speak of gardens, hills, and nonsense. But that's only because of your limited experience. When you compare it to the broader experience that I have, um, then you would, if you did that, you would think differently. Alice instead is saying, my head exactly as you're suggesting, um, I'm comparing it to absolutes. Not to, you know, it's you who is being relative. It's you who's being localized. You say you have this broader experience, but I'm appealing to definitions, to absolutes, which are broader than, than the queen, than the basis of the queen's assertions, right? That's interesting. One more. For some minutes, Alice stood without speaking, Oh, so hang on a second. All right, before we get to this, I didn't want to look at the whole passage, but um, uh, the, well, it's, okay, it's right after this. Never mind, it's after this. So we'll we'll um, we'll get to it after this. For some minutes, Alice stood without speaking, looking out in all directions over the country, and a most curious country it was. There were a number of tiny little brooks running straight across it from side to side, and the ground between was divided up into squares by a number of little green hedges that reached from brook to brook. I declare, it's marked out just like a large chessboard, Alice said at last. There ought to be some men moving about somewhere, and so there are, she added with a tone of delight, and her heart began to beat quick with excitement as she went on. It's a great huge game of chess that's being played all over the world, if this is the world at all, you know. Oh, what fun it is. Oh, how I wish I was one of them. I wouldn't mind being a pawn, if only I might join, though of course I should like to be a queen best. She glanced rather shyly at the real queen as she said this, but her companion only smiled pleasantly and said, That's easily managed. You can be the white queen's pawn if you like, as Lily's too young to play. And you're in the second square to begin with. When you get to the eighth square, you'll be a queen. Just at this moment, somehow or other, they began to run. Um, okay, so Alice sees the chessboard. Of course, the world that's described here is the image that uh, I've been using, right? This is the uh, for the title image here of Alice's adventures. Um, this is her looking out from the hilltop out on the landscape with the hedges in one direction and the brooks in the other direction. Notice, by the way, the, um, uh, the effect of this, that the hedges are vertical and the brooks are horizontal. The brooks are easy to get over. You just hop over them. They're, they're very small brooks. Um, so if you're Alice, how are you going to travel on this? Well, 
you're going to go straight ahead from square to square like a pawn because you can't go from side. There are guardrails up. There are hedges that you can't get through. Um, so some pieces can go side to side or diagonally. Um, some pieces can get over the hedges, but the pawns cannot. Uh, so Alice is in a row, um, is living in a row like a pawn. Um, and we can see how he has geographically set that up. Um, but back to... Uh, okay. Um, she immediately starts thinking about this. Now, this, of course, is our second overlay. We have the looking glass as one conceit with which to uh, sort of through which to think about the world, right? And its relationship to our world and Alice's own interaction with it. Um, and uh, now we have the game of chess as a second conceit that is overlaid on top of the looking glass thing um, as another way, as another framework uh, in which to understand the story and the action that we're going to be getting and the characters with whom she's going to be interacting uh, as we move forward through the story. And her reaction to this, there ought to be some men moving about, and so there are. It's a great, huge game. So first she just notices the likeness. It looks like a large chessboard. And then when she says there ought to be, I think that's her imagining, right? Um, since it looks so much like a chessboard, there should be. Um, there should be men moving about on the board. That's how things should work if things worked properly, right? And then, to her delight, she finds that it is so. Um, the way that she would pretend things to be um, turns out to be the way that things are in this world. And when that happens, she is full of delight and excitement. Oh, what fun it is. How I wish I was one of them. So here's her wishing again, just like she wished the flowers could talk. And guess what? Um, she's going to be able to be a chess piece. I wouldn't mind being a pawn, if only I might join. Though, of course, I should like to be a queen. Um, and, of course, pawns can turn into queens, as the, uh, uh, as the red queen points out. When you get to the eighth square, you'll be a queen. So there you go. There is a path f for you to be a queen. It's that path right there. Um, but here is, to me, the um, right for Thoughtless. That is wonderful. Uh, earlier, Alice was mistaken for a flower, and now she's replacing Lily. Yeah, exactly. She's a Lily now, or she is Lily now. Um, and I think Alice is blonde, and so therefore is more like a lily uh, than, uh, uh, than some other flowers, anyway. Um, but no, I do not think, for Thoughtless, that that's a coincidence. She's now a white flower. So we could say that flowers are yet another kind of overlay, um, another conceit over this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but look at her comment in the middle. It's a great huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. If this is the world at all, you know. 
What does Alice mean by that? All over the world, if this is the world, she is thinking about, is she thinking about her world versus Looking Glass world? Is she questioning the reality of what she's seeing? So when she starts off, it's a huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. She means, as far as I can see, right? Um, not like, so the world surely doesn't mean like the globe, right? Um, but on the one hand, so, okay, if this is the world at all. It seems the question she's now inviting is, well, where is Looking Glass Room and Looking Glass House and the Garden and Hill and enormous chessboard outside of Looking Glass House? Where is that? Is it, um, is it in the world? Is it a part of our world? Is it a different world? Is it a world at all? I do think, Fourth Dauntless, that we're beginning to see here a question. Is this a dream world? Is she just pretending? Right? I mean, is this real life? Or is it just fantasy? I think that's one of the questions that she's asking herself here. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Jackrabbit, that's a fascinating parallel. Um, thinking about Jesus being taken to the top of a high mountain and being shown all the kingdoms of the world. Um, it's a huge, great game of chess that's being played all over the world. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating comparison. Um, I don't deny that Alice looking down from a high place, even though it's so much less high than the hills that the Red Queen has seen, um, and saying they're playing this game over the whole world is a little bit reminiscent of that. Um, she is seeing the world outside. She wanted to see the world outside Looking Glass House, and she's seeing it. She's going to get to be a part of it. It's fulfilling her wish. What is it that you want? What do you want to be? Um, this is where, yeah, again, um, Jack Rabbit, I'm thinking about your comparison. Um, how real is this? How, how much has she ever been... Now, notice, well, remember, I don't recall Alice ever asking this question in Wonderland. She fell down the rabbit hole, and things were strange, very strange. She was strange. She was afraid she'd become Mabel. Remember, it was horrible. Um, but I don't remember her ever saying, is this the real world? 
she was accepting that. I was just quoting a famous poem and talking about, is this this just fantasy? Um, But I think that's actually quite relevant. Um, Not uh, the entirety of Bohemian Rhapsody, but the concept of fantasy, I mean. Um, There's a sense in which this maps onto a question that a child would have. I remember Tolkien talking about this in On Fairy Stories um, when they're asking if there are really dragons. Uh, when a child is asking if there are really dragons and Tolkien says that what they what they mostly mean is am I safe in my bed, right? Um, understanding what is real, what is not real. <clears throat> is this really happening? Could this really happening? This wishing, this pretending that she's doing, how f- is is she just pretending? Is somebody else pretending? What's happening here? Again, these are questions uh, that um, the story is going to be increasingly inviting as we go through. But what is its relationship with the world? She was exploring it as if it were a part of the world. When she went into Wonderland, she found lots of weird stuff. And, but like, look, when you're a child, you don't know. I mean, the Red Queen is being funny. I I mean, it's funny to hear the Red Queen talk about the breadth of her experience compared to the narrowness of Alice's experience. But of course, that's, that's real. That's a real thing. The adults who are talking to children or telling stories to children do, in fact, know more of the world than the child does. And so when a young child is being read a story that is a fantasy story... It might sound like it's happening. Some it happens somewhere in the world. How does the child know? I mean, you could tell, you could explain it, but then you just have to take your word for it, right? That uh, this isn't the world at all, or is it? Alice wasn't even asking the question in the last book, but she's asking now, um, and. Uh, um, Yes, she was seven, and now she is seven and a half exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, that's that's Alice's age. Um, she's a big girl compared to Lily, right, who's too young to play. Lily's just a baby. Um, so we don't get an answer to this question here, but it's, an, it's important to re- recall this question as we move forward. Is this the world at all, you know. Um, or what fun it is, right? She's not worried about it. Um, the thing I was going to bring up, and I'll just bring it up since I already mentioned it, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, right after they begin to run, um, Alice is given, uh, she's hot and thirsty and completely out of breath, and she's given a biscuit uh, to restore herself. Um, like a cracker, right? So she's given a, a very dry cracker um, and is asked afterwards if her thirst is quenched. 
So this whole... Well, let me just leave that with you. And we'll come back to that at the beginning of next time. How does the giving of the biscuit and expecting it to quench her thirst, how does that connect with the comparisons that we saw before? The hills and valleys, the nonsense in dictionaries, the wildernesses and gardens. How does, uh, how does that work? Normally, well, in modern England, biscuit equals cookie. Um, but Alice does not relish this. Um, it's clearly very dry. It's, she says she's almost never been um, so uh, nearly choked in her life. Um, so I think it's got to be... So, I'm, so I, I'm imagining like a dry, salty cracker, basically. But um, in American parlance. But um, anyway, okay. Um, we'll come back to the biscuit next time. We're almost done with the Red Queen, and then we will move on to Looking Glass Insects next time, uh, which will be which will be a lot of fun. All right. Um, thanks for joining me tonight. I should be back next week as normal. Um, we should be able to return now, more or less, to a regular weekly schedule uh, moving forward. Very exciting now. Um, I've got a little bit more travel happening here. I'm going away this weekend to the Prancing Pony Moot in Milwaukee. Um, and then I've got one more Signum Regional Moot in the fall. Uh, after that, in two weeks, to SoCal Moot in Southern California and Car Carlsbad, California. Uh, so uh, both of those should be a lot of fun. And But then after that, I'm not traveling again, I think until Christmas. So um, uh, I should have a nice little stretch at home and some relatively normal life. We'll see how that goes. Uh, anyway, thanks everybody for joining me and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.